Christ? Am I becoming more like Christ? If the goal is to be with Jesus and become like Jesus, have you ever stopped to think, like, how much percentage have I become like Jesus? Like, okay, if I was 3% last year, am I 4% this year? You know, if I was 10%, am I 12%? Sometimes does it feel like you're, like, going down percentage? You're like, I was probably 20% like Jesus. Now, after the pandemic, maybe it's 8, you know? Like, how do you know? Um, I like games where you can level up. Before the service, Caden and Keen and I were talking about Fortnite and what level we were in Fortnite. And I like that because it shows you, like, I'm getting better. I'm level 100. I'm better at Fortnite than I was, right? But there is no clear sense of progression, at least not a level bar above our heads, to tell us how much like Jesus we have become. There's no level up bar in the Christian faith. In fact, it's relatively easy to fake a level of Christian moral progress and not actually become like Jesus at all. And the Bible talks quite a bit like this. If you just look through the New Testament, it uses imagery like wolves, people who pretend to be sheep but actually sneak in, hypocrites, people who look one way but actually are another. And I think the question for us as we get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount today is, how do we identify our stage of apprenticeship? our level of discipleship? How do we really tell if we're spiritually mature? How do we know if we are a hypocrite, or even worse, a wolf in sheep's clothing? Jesus spends some time talking about these things as he wraps up the Sermon on the Mount, and he warns us that not everyone who says spiritual things will be in his kingdom. Not just saying the right things means you're in the door. In fact, in this passage, he gives us three somber warnings. So Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 23, if you have a Bible app, it's also on that piece of paper. Enter through the narrow gate, Jesus says. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets that come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name? Did we not perform any miracles in your name? And I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Man, what a sober way to end the Sermon on the Mount. First, though, he warns us that we need to be sure that we're on the right path through life. Jesus suggests that there are two roads through life, a highway and a scenic route. If there's two ways to get anywhere, I'm like, take the highway, the most direct, fast, and smooth path. I hate scenic routes. Sometimes you see a trucky thing, but it takes forever. I get car sick, and I'm like, why are we in the car an extra three hours just so that we can see the world's biggest ball of yarn, you know? There's a narrow path and a broad <laughs> because of seeing the world's largest ball of yarn would be amazing. You're right, there. There is a narrow path and a broad road through life. Or in other words, Jesus says, there is his way through life, and there's your way. There's my way. And we have a way that we think, this is the way life should go, and then there's his way. And he makes it clear that most people pick their way over his way. 
The way of Jesus, this is his word, is a twisty, bumpy, difficult road, but it leads to life. And the smooth, comfortable, straight path leads to death. G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity has not been tested and found inadequate. It has been found difficult and left untried. Sometimes Christians say really silly things. Um, I had a friend tell me one time, I know it's what God wants. I know it's his will. If everything just works out and there's no trouble or difficulty, it's just a completely smooth path. There's just no issues, no extra effort or unexpected trouble. Um, I just don't know if that's a biblical idea. Often, no opposition doesn't mean you're in God's will. It means you're not in the enemy's way. Jesus describes his path through life as rocky, slow, and dangerous. The path my friend was describing was really what Jesus would call the broad way. The, the broad, the smooth, the clear way, the highway. If the will of God led Jesus to the cross to die for the sins of the world, we should expect the will of God to lead us to hard things, down hard paths for the good of others. And it's easy to listen to a message like this and assume, whoa, we're in. Jesus is talking to somebody else. Like these warnings are for other people, they're not for me. But all these people have gathered to listen to Jesus' presentation on the kingdom, his invitation to become disciples, and his disciples are there. And he is not just saying this for some of the other people, you know, he's saying it for us. We shouldn't assume that Jesus is talking to someone else just because we prayed a prayer, or we were baptized, or we were confirmed, or we took communion, or we preached one time, or we led worship. Whatever criteria we think makes us safe from this, we should take Jesus' warning seriously. He's like, are you really sure that you want this, that you're really in, that you're really bought in, you're not just playing a part? Um, my grandfather, my entire life, he was a man who deeply hated God. And anytime anyone talked about God or Jesus, he would get very uncomfortable, very angry, very like hostile. And he would always go back to one thing when we talked to him and we'd say, uh, I called him Pappy. I was like, Pappy, have you ever become a follower of Jesus? Like, have you ever actually become a Christian? And he'd say the same thing. 1974, I played Jesus in the Easter play at such and such church. You think they'd let someone play Jesus in the Easter play if they weren't right with God? And I was like, yeah, but you hate God. Like, you hate everything about it. You hate praying, you hate the Bible, you hate church, you hate everything. He's like, I played Jesus in the Easter play in 19... <laughs> and he thought, that made it right, because he had done that. None of this mattered. He was good. And it's easy for us to think back to something that we've done in the past and think these warnings of Jesus aren't for us because we played Jesus in the Easter play in 19, and you're going to fill in the blank with something else. But let's take these warnings, let's just assume Jesus is talking to us as we take these warnings. Let's see if there's not areas in our life that these things could apply to. It's easy to be religious, to play Jesus. It's hard to become like Jesus. It requires something from us. Now, the invitation to discipleship is free, right? Because Jesus died on the cross. We couldn't do anything to earn that. That's what grace is all about. But discipleship, becoming like Jesus, will cost you everything because it calls you to surrender your time, your money, your dreams, and your very life to God. It calls us to surrender our way through life and walk on his path. And that might be a twisty, difficult, slow, narrow, dangerous path. Now, he's not a God who takes what we lay down. And he's like, well, that was a waste. Bye. Say bye to you. Watch it float away. You'll never see it again. 
No, he doesn't let our pain or our sacrifice ever go to waste. When our dreams die, he resurrects something better, his garden kingdom in us and to us. Now, his second warning, he warns us that we could be listening to the wrong voices to make sense of our world. Notice what he says here. Watch out for false prophets in verse 15. And you might be like, okay, I have not listened to any prophets, let alone false prophets. So this doesn't apply to us, right? A prophet is someone who gives us a vision of a better future. Now, we could stop and be like, well, I don't know any prophets. Let's just skip it. But a prophetic voice is a visionary who offers a path to where people want to go. And we may not call them prophets, but we have a lot of prophetic voices in our world today. Podcasts and politicians, psychologists, pastors, priests and rabbis, talk show hosts, friends, scientists, professors, politicians, authors, YouTube and TikTok stars, mentors. There are a thousand prophetic voices speaking into our life. Whether you are religious or not, we all still have people we look to in order to make sense of our world and give us a, an idea about where we want to go. There are people we listen to and learn from. And prophets, regardless of whether or not they have any religious connection or not, almost always use spiritual language. Like if you go on YouTube and you don't look up anything religious, but you just look for something about like what you should do with your life or meaning or purpose, they're, they're going to talk about destiny and morality. They're going to use all this spiritual language, even if it's not religious. Um, when I was in high school, my family started attending this fundamentalist church, and they were all about denouncing false prophets. And false prophets were anybody who wasn't them. And so it was pretty much everybody. And so they would always talk about this. They're like, false prophets, false prophets. They just saw false prophets everywhere. That's not what I'm suggesting here. Uh, Jesus gives us some clear warning signs about how to identify a false prophet, a visionary who's giving us a picture of a preferred future, but actually we should be careful about. In verse 15, he says they appear to be one thing, but upon close inspection, they're actually something else. He gives us this example that they're wolves in sheep's clothing, but when you get close enough, you realize they're wolves, not sheep. And then in verse 16 and 17, he talks about the fruit. Um, or we might say it like this, their character doesn't match their charisma. We have a lot of prophetic voices in our world today where their character doesn't match their charisma. These are people who have ulterior motives. From a distance, they look safe, but up close, they don't stand up to close inspection. Before you trust someone, before you allow someone to speak into your life about the preferred future that you want to get and the road you need to take to get there, consider how they use their money, consider what they do with power, consider how they treat their spouse. It's really good and really easy to look good on the stage or behind the camera or on the internet. It's really easy to paint this perfect picture that doesn't give you a good idea of what someone's really like. And I realize it's ironic because I'm standing on a stage right now as I say that. Um, but these apply to me too. You should examine how I live, how I talk to people, how I treat people, how well I love my wife. Like, ask her. Because if I'm not loving her well, if I'm not treating people well, then I am a false prophet. We should consider that we might be false prophets. We might be confusing people about who Jesus was and what his life was about because we don't actually live with love like he did. Jesus' final warning is about how easy it is to say something and not do it. How easy it is to sound spiritual but not become spiritual. 
reading Love Your Neighbor, even affirming what a fine statement that is, like, man, what a good teaching, that's so great. It's always easier than actually getting out there and loving your neighbor. That's hard work. Jesus is warning that he's not looking for yes men, people who just tell him what he wants to hear, but then don't actually do it. He's looking for people who will take his vision of human flourishing and will live it out in the ordinary moments of their everyday lives. It is a lot easier to say the right things. It's so much harder to do the right things. It's so easy to say. It costs me nothing to say the words. Talk is cheap. Jesus wants followers who live and love like him, not people who just know a lot of facts about him. In John 14 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you practice my teachings, keep my teachings, do them, live them out. Don't memorize them. Don't study the Greek behind them. I don't think any of those are bad things. He wants us to practice them. Uh, there's a story Francis Chan tells in one of his books, and he says, if I tell my daughter to go and clean her room, and she memorizes the statement, go and clean your room, and she recites it to herself every day, and then she gathers some of her friends from school, and they sit down together and say, let's talk about the implications of cleaning my room. Let's talk about how like good this would be, and like, what does clean your room mean to you? Like, what would it look like? And we sat around and talked about it. He goes, at the end of the day, I would still call her a disobedient daughter. Because I did not ask her to memorize it. I did not ask her to gather a group of people and talk about it. I asked her to do it. And I think that if we're honest, a lot of us love his teachings but don't practice his teachings. A lot of us memorize his teachings but don't live his teachings. A lot of us talk about his teachings but we have not shown his teachings to the world. Do we love Jesus? Because love is not an emotion. In the West, that's how we think of it. But in the East, in the first century in Jewish culture, love was an action word, not an emotion word. In the Western world, we have a lot of people who memorize facts about Jesus but don't love their neighbors. We have a lot of people who say they love Jesus but don't love their enemies. Saying words without practicing what we say is no guarantee of admittance into the kingdom. That's what Jesus says here. I don't like it. I don't like that he said that. But that's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that people who don't know him will still do impressive things. Things like writing best-selling books, preaching to huge crowds, and growing massive churches. Doing impressive things is no guarantee that a miracle is taking place. When millions of people, millions of people crowd into a football stadium, we don't say, what a miracle of God. Look how we brought the people out to watch the Eagles lose. I wish they'd win, but let's be honest, right? Boo, boo, sorry. No, I thought I'd get to this at that. Um, go birds, right? Hopefully they win. But we don't call it a miracle just because they showed up. Doing impressive things is no guarantee that God is involved. He says that people will show up when he is king and list all their accomplishments to gain entrance and it won't do any good. I played Jesus in the Easter play in 1970 and he's like, no good. Jesus says entry into the kingdom is about relationship, not your resume. No one earns their spot in their kingdom. Every spot is a gift bought with his blood. But Jesus ends his passage in Matthew with a sobering line. Get away from me, lawbreakers. You did a lot of things in my name, but I never knew you. He called them evil, 
lawbreakers, and we usually think of evil like stealing, killing, you know, like a really bad thing. Jesus said doing the right things for the wrong reasons, doing good things in his name that produce good results, but they're not about him, are evil too. They were so busy doing things for him that they had no time to get to know him. Jesus wants you and I. He wants you and I to be in relationship with him. He wants you and I to become like him. He's so much less interested in what we're doing because he doesn't need us to do things. But he wants us to know him and be in relationship with him. Now, once again here, it would be easy to be like, man, I'm so glad Jesus is saying this to those other people who need to hear this. But we need to stop and not just assume that Jesus is talking to someone else. We should examine ourselves. These warnings are for us. Am I taking my path through life or am I taking Jesus' path? Who do I believe is describing what the good life looks like? My political party, my favorite health guru, or Jesus? Have I learned a lot about Jesus or have I become like Jesus? Have I become a person of peace and an agent of love? Let's look at the final verses in Matthew chapter 7 together here. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew. They pounded that house, and yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew, and they pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. It's going to be really easy after this. I realize it's been a long Sermon on the Mount series, um, but it's going to be really easy after this series for us to go back to our ordinary lives and be like, man, I learned some cool stuff about Matthew. I know more stuff about the Sermon on the Mount that I can drop off at Christian, you know, um, dinner parties. And be like, I got these cool facts that I know about the Sermon on the Mount now. I know a little bit more about the teachings of Jesus and not do anything with them. But Jesus seems to anticipate this. Notice what he says in verse 24. The wise of those who hear what I've just said in Matthew 5 through 7 and act on it. Hearing alone isn't enough. You need to act on what I just said. Information alone doesn't produce transformation. That's why we have people who have been in churches all their life and listened to sermons all their life and they still hate their neighbors. They're still wrapped by guilt. They're still angry at everything they can't control. They learned a lot about Jesus, but they don't look a lot like Jesus because the information isn't enough. Transformation requires John Mark Homer says, transformation happens as a result of teaching, practice, community, and the Holy Spirit. If you just have teaching, but you don't have practice or community or the Holy Spirit, you will not be transformed. Teaching is the starting point, but it's simply the starting point. Now we have to practice these things that Jesus taught. We have to implement them. The Greek word for do here is to, or the Greek word for build here is to do. It's repeated all throughout this final chapter, uh, chapter 7 of Matthew. It's the Greek word for do or to practice, to actually get out and obey it, to do it, to practice it. Jesus wants us to build our lives on the foundation of, our, of his teachings. 
He isn't just suggesting, these are some nice moral niceties. If you can sprinkle these into your life a little bit, life will be better. You know, he's not an influencer out there. He's like, three tips to sprinkle into your life to make your life better this week. You know, no. He's saying you build your life on the foundation of these teachings. This isn't something we add on to the existing structure. We need to build everything on this. He suggests building our whole life on his teachings. It's a firm foundation. It is bedrock. And Jesus uses some interesting language in this passage. He doesn't say the one who builds on the stone, who builds on his teaching, is good, and the one who builds on the sand is bad or evil. He uses the Greek words for intelligent and stupid. Most of our translations say wise or foolish, but he literally uses the Greek words for intelligent or smart and stupid. In fact, the Greek word for stupid used here is the word we get more wrong from. And so what Jesus is saying is, if you don't practice what I teach, your life will be unstable and you're a moron. That's what Jesus is saying in the Greek. You didn't know Jesus called people moron, but he did. He's like, you don't have to be a moron, though. Build on my teachings. There are some branches of Christianity that seem to rebel in being ignorant. I remember going to a few churches and they're like, edumacation, that's what'll get you. Don't ever be edumacated, you know, it's that. That's just how they talk. And they're like, we can't trust them. We can't trust them. Book learning, you know? Um, no. It's not much of that. But you don't have to throw your brains in the trash to be a Christian. Faith doesn't mean you ignore facts. It means you look at the facts and you make a logical hypothesis. Jesus is saying that intelligent people are going to look at what he teaches and realize that his teaching would change your lives. His teaching would change the world. His teachings are a firm foundation to build a life on. A life that can withstand the winds and waves of a turbulent world, even a turbulent world like the one we live in today. Um, I have some atheist friends, and sometimes we'll start asking some spiritual questions, which I love. I love to talk about them with them. And they'll be like, I just don't know if he came back from the dead. I just don't know if he's God. And, and I always ask them the same thing. Look at his teachings, Matthew 5 through 7. Do you think that your life would be better if you loved your enemies like he described? If you lived like he described? If everyone on this planet lived and loved like he described in Matthew 5 through 7, would the world be better? And they all have to say the same thing, yes. A few of the several ones are like, I don't want an answer. I'm like, well, that's also an answer. Um, it would. His teachings are a firm foundation. Maybe you don't know if Jesus was really God. Maybe you don't really know if he came back from the dead. That's okay. None of us know. Like, if we knew, there would be no faith. We hope and we trust. We examine the evidence and we experiment with what he's taught. It's called faith. Maybe you don't like some of his teachings. I know that I struggle to love my enemies. I like to love people who love me back. I don't love my enemies. It's hard. I struggle not to judge. I struggle to believe that his teaching on nonviolence is the right response to evil. But despite all this, if you honestly, honestly look at the teachings of Jesus, you have to admit that if everyone lived and loved like Jesus, the world would be a better place. If we lived and loved like Jesus, my life would be a better place. The greatest need facing our churches is not political or cultural. The greatest need is for people who casually call themselves Christians to become disciples, apprentices of Jesus' way of life, not just learning more information about him, but actually practicing what he taught. The greatest need is for people who say, yeah, I believe that, to begin to live and love like Jesus did, 
moving from someone who casually listens to Jesus to becoming an active follower, an apprentice of it, living out what he taught. 2,000 years ago, Jesus invited people to become his students, apprentices of how he lived and loved. 2,000 years later, men, women, boys, and girls are still encountering the divine as they live and love like he did. And Jesus is still whispering the same invitation he gave to disciples 2,000 years ago. Come, follow me. Come practice what I teach. Come have my life. It's an abundant life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for coming and dying. Yes. But even before that, you lived and you taught. And thank you for that. Thank you for your resurrection and your ascension. God, we are so grateful that because of your death, we can have your life. That you take our sin and you give us your holiness. And God, I pray that we won't be people who simply hear your words and walk away because then we are fools. We are morons. May we be people who hear what you teach and begin to implement it in our lives. That we won't simply say, man, because more information. Yes, I believe it. We will begin to live it. Show that we truly do believe.